All right, well, not that we had a lot of uh, extra time to play with, but God knows, and I'm going to get it set up, and we'll go as quickly as I can with, um, what are you guys seeing? Oh, good, you're not seeing all of this. All right, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for today and the privilege of getting to sing and trust in Jesus, who is strong, like so strong that he created the universe and he saved us by his blood, but also so kind that he is considerate of our weaknesses. So we come to you with hope and joy and pray that you would teach us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start this morning by showing you a little bit of like family pictures, just because that's why we went over there in one sense. It was both a a pastoral trip, right? Because we had two young men from our church who were in Israel, so we needed to go visit them. It just happens that one of them was our son, and one of them was our basically adopted son. So it worked out well, and uh, I'll see if I can make this work well and not be too distracting. So this was after 24, 30 hours of travel um, it's pretty amazing. My wife always looks good, but after that long time, it's, it's remarkable. We get there, and yes, I know Hudson has food in his mouth, but that was one of the highlights. They got to eat with us in our dining room because they didn't always get to do that. So it was a special privilege for them to get to come and eat with us. And then Alicia, of course, had brought goodies and home-baked some brownies with caramel in them, and they were excited and eager. And again, Hudson's mouth is full there. But... <laughs> Then they spent the day with us um, going around Jerusalem, getting to see the sights, getting to take pictures together. Alicia loved getting pictures with the boys. And then this is kind of what it looked like most of the trip. We're standing there listening to someone teach and explain things. We got to go into the tunnels under the city of David, the um, that Hezekiah dug, and then again, mommy getting pictures with her son and getting to see where Samson was. And then at the Sea of Galilee, I was happy to represent the church with my Grace Bible Church shirt. Got many compliments on the back, the the song text, and of course, Ironwood hat. So that was fun there on the Sea of Galilee. I'll say more about that in a little bit. And then we were with a group of about 50 from um, a church. I can't even remember where they they are now. Um, But a church group and then also about a whole group, like 30, I think, or 20 of friends or family of the students who were at the IBEX program. And then the last day, we got to spend a number of t- uh, hours, I think four hours, following Brandon and Hudson. Actually, I think we, well, I asked them to do, Brandon, you stay in front, Hudson, you stay in back, and, and vice versa, so that we would stay together. Because you can see it's crowded, and we had no idea where we were. They took us to their favorite food spot. Um, And it was one where they served large portions to fill their stomachs, which didn't always happen in other places. And then the last day, we had to say goodbye um, and fly back here. And they're finishing up their finals right now. We're getting texts from Brandon. They just finished a a Hebrew exam, and they're getting close to being done. All right, so that's, that's kind of why we went there. Now I want to use that trip as the sermon. So, um... I don't know how familiar you are with these pictures. There's way more to say than I could say, and I'm not nearly as well prepared as I wanted to be because of the sheer volume of the content and how much you can do with it. Let me say this. Would you turn your Bibles to 1 John 1? I just want 
to set this as the stage for what we're going to look at. 1 John 1. And it's funny. When I put this in here, I only copied in John 1, but I know this isn't John 1 because I can quote John 1 and I can quote 1 John 1. So I'm confident this is 1 John, but I'm being transparent with you as you turn there. And I'm just a little bit holding my breath. No, this is, this is 1 John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. You know, we talked about these rocks. That's why these rocks are here, by the way. This one's from Galilee. You can touch it and you can come back. This has some really cool spots that are fun to touch. Um, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus. And the life was manifest or made manifest and we have seen it and we're testifying to it and proclaiming to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. So that's Jesus that we have seen and heard. Now we're proclaiming it to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. And that really, I think, fits with what I wanted to accomplish here this morning in this sermon where I'm using so much from the trip. Um, When you think about Christmas, we're talking about Jesus coming to be with us. We're talking about God coming as Emmanuel. In Matthew chapter 1, we have the, the record of the birth of Jesus. And so I'm going to give you seven lessons from the land of Israel, but I think it fits very well with the Christmas season and the idea of come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. And so when Jesus was born, his Mary being betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she has a son by the Holy Spirit in her womb. And then she gives birth to him. And, he, and Joseph was also told, you call the baby what? Jesus. Because he's the one who will save his people from their sin. That's Yahweh, God who saves, is the baby. And so this morning, we're going to look at these seven lessons from the land of Israel and make the point that we need to come and adore him who is the one with whom the disciples saw the places where we walked and were, were the places where he was, where they were. And that should help us to adore him, to have fellowship with him better. And so the seven lessons are number one, the reality of the God of the Bible. Some of these lessons overlap. You could call them a variety of things, but the point is the thing that really hit home for me as I was going around and looking at these places was The God of the Bible, the Bible is real. It's not a story. It's not make-believe. This is a picture of a Canaanite altar or a Canaanite temple that dates back before the time of Abraham. In the Bible, it talks about Abraham going into the land of the Canaanites. And this is an altar that's 3100 BC. And so like 5,000 years old, you're standing there looking at this thing. I didn't get this picture. I mixed in a few pictures to help give you perspective, but the ones, the rest of the ones are ones that I took while we were there. And so you're standing there looking at this ancient altar before the time of Abraham. And then we went to a place in the north of Israel where there was this gate. Now this is just a, a, you know, reconfiguration here on a plaque or on a a three-dimensional object right in front of this gate. These are mud bricks that have been there from the time of Abraham. It's very possible that Abraham came to this place, went through this gate. And so again, a testimony to the fact that God is real and his word is true. And then when you go to a place called Megiddo, near you've heard of the um, Armageddon and 
this is a place where you can see out when it's clear. Ours wasn't as clear as this particular day. You can see from Nazareth to different places. Well, here there are also ancient gates or walkways. This is also where that, um, that altar is. And so it's fascinating that this hill was leveled and rebuilt or built in different stages 26 times because of the strategic location of it. There are these gates. And when you think of a gate, and I say the word gate, I'm not talking about the doors that open and close. I'm talking about the structure around it. There are these places for soldiers to be or to, to, to take um, their guard and then also to keep the, uh, the, the enemies from coming through. And so they they're often have this interesting shape. They don't just go straight through it. But again, this one dates back to the, the late bronze period, so the time of, of Abraham. And then you have one right nearby where they've uncovered it, and it's the time of Solomon. And so we have this evidence of God's word being true. You walk on the stones. Yes, they, they've taken certain ones. Like if you see the, the layer of wood, that wood is where they've built extra on top of it. But the things below it have been undisturbed since those times. And so that's fascinating to me. And it's interesting. Then you've got, again, this is a picture of Solomon's Gate and these different um, places where they would have the soldiers and protect the city. Again, just a testimony to God's power. And then you go to the very north again, and you have um, this, the area of Dan, the tribe of Dan. And it's a beautiful area. It's kind of like our Northern California and there's another set of gates, the same kind of thing um, from the, again, from some of it from the late Bronze Age. That's where that, that gate where Abraham was, was um, or is, and you can go see it. And then this is a demonstration from above of the kind of shape. It has this L and it zigzags back and forth. And you can walk on those stones and you can touch the walls and you can see where this, the ruler would have sat at the gate. And this is a, a little seat where like, you know, if you remember the story of Absalom and he's going to go and let everybody know that he should be king instead of his father. And so he goes and sits at the gate of the city and the people would come and tell them their stories. This is the kind of seat that would be. And then the, the other supporting rulers would sit next to him or next to them on these stone benches. And so it's fascinating to see these things. Now we're going to jump back to Jerusalem. That was the first picture that was up there. This is Jerusalem and uh, from the east side and the Temple Mount. Um, from the Temple Mount, if you go south, you run into the city of David. And again, David, we know David, right? David and Goliath, by the way, that's what the rocks are for. We'll get to it in a minute. Um, you get the city of David, a place that was built before the time of David by the Jebusites. And so on the um, the ground that the Jebusites had built, David built his palace, and you get to go look at that. And so we could see, again, on these hills, and by the way, one of the most distinctive features in the land of Israel are the hills and the valleys. It is a place where they were not wimps. They had thigh muscles, calf muscles. They could walk. They weren't couch potatoes. They couldn't be, and those who were needed, needed help being carried by those who were strong. And so David's palace is built on this hill, and they have this really nice visit, you know, visitor center that they've been working on and nearly finished. And you can stand or sit here and you can see the different levels. You can see that sloped area that is, was, goes back before the time of David to the, to the palace of David, to a house that was built to Hezekiah's time. And it's there that, um, if you've heard and you read in your Bible of the Gihon Spring, you have that spring of water that Hezekiah wanted to make sure he protected 
when the Assyrians were going to come and attack Jerusalem. And so he dug a tunnel from the Gihon Spring down to the Pool of Siloam under the ground, and then he extended the wall. You can see the wall of Hezekiah. You can see the spring. You can actually climb down into the canyons or caves under the ground. Some of them are huge openings. Some of it's very small and narrow. And it's just fascinating, and it's confirming to those of us who believe the Bible that this is real. This isn't make-believe. I don't know if you can see that very well, but off to your left there, Alicia and Brandon are in the cave. It's narrow. Like, I was brushing my shoulders half the time, but we're walking through that spring of water. It's one of the things that is fun to do, special to do. And then again, you're touching rock that was carved out by, since the time of Hezekiah. And one of the interesting things, if you remember the story of Jesus in John 8, when he comes out of the temple, he sees that blind man from birth, and the blind man asks Jesus to to heal him, and he puts the mud on his eyes, and he sends him to the pool of Siloam. That was a hike. It was a long trek down that hill, like 700 yards down the hill. Um, And it's a steep hill. You can kind of see it here in this picture. And he goes down to the Pool of Siloam. This is from a, a model of, of Jerusalem that I'm going to use a number of times, where he goes down to that pool, washes, and then goes back up seeing, and it causes quite a stir. Then um, if you go back to the Temple Mount, back up on the top of the hill, um, one of the things that is famous that you'll all, I'm sure, be aware of if you have Bible knowledge and experience is the Western Wall. It's the place where Jews and all people um, from different religions even will come, but especially Orthodox Jews will come to the Western Wall and they'll pray and they'll cry out to God. There's a, there's a women's side and there's a men's side. And uh, on the men's side, I'll show you in just a little bit where they have um, a special area that's close to what they believe is the Holy of Holies, underneath the Holy of Holies as a place to pray. But again, here you have the evidence of, of people coming. Look at, look at when it's full. That wasn't when we were there. But I just wanted to show you how many people come to this place to recognize the reality of God's existence and that something has gone on there for thousands of years. And people come and pray in their phylacteries and, the, and in their different Jewish garb. Um, then we came and went around the corner and we saw um, some of the rubble from AD 70. One of Jesus' predictions was that the temple would be torn down and thrown off, thrown to the ground, um, and the temple would be destroyed, and it was by the Romans in 70 AD. They have excavated the Temple Mount, so they've dug down and removed rubble, and they found these big, huge stones. You can see the size of the people there by those little gates, and then the pile of stones from the top of the Temple Mount. And then our teacher was there explaining and showing us pictures of that rubble. And so we have evidence, again, of God's power and his word being true and the city being destroyed. You can see those stones that are caved in a bit. Those are are stones of a walkway where Jesus would have walked in the first century that were bashed in because of the rocks, the stones being thrown over the edge. And those are still there. You can see them. You can touch them. And that was very moving for me. Right at the same time, 70 AD, the Jews who weren't captured or killed um, fled to Masada. You may have heard of Masada. It was a place up on a, on a platform out near the Dead Sea where Herod had built a palace, a remarkable palace, um, way up high. It's, it's kind of like there's a tram, like going to the tram, except there's no green trees on top. It's like going um, up this high mountain to this flat plateau where Herod's palace was. 
Um, there's a snake path going up one side that takes a long time. There's the gondola, which, of course, we rode. The kids, the young men and young women who were there, they walked, I think, up one side and down the other. There's the Roman siege ramp um, where in order to capture the city and get to those Jews, they built this ramp so they could take a battering ram up the side and hit the doors of the gate and get in the city. Uh, I think Hudson ran up the whole thing. And... Uh, Brandon has pictures of him doing it. And then um, the Northern Palace, just remarkable, the places. I mean, I, I didn't, the gondola ride wasn't super short. I cannot imagine carrying all the stones up that mountain. And then, and then not just the stones. And of course, I could imagine the views. That would be nice. But then they built, look at the size of this cistern. Um, here, people in it. It's huge. That's one of the cisterns up on the top of that hill, dug out, plastered, so that then people, bucket by bucket, could bring water, fill it. They had it covered for the most part so that the, it wouldn't go bad, and they would have to come and collect their water from there. It's a remarkable thing that they built. But again, this was part of the destruction of the temple, and then the Romans going after the Jews that were there. And this is a view going up in the gondola to the top. This is from the top. You can look down and you can see where the Romans built their camps all around it, those little squares. And then the walls, they built a wall so nobody could escape. I think there were like 900 and something Jews that were up there on that plateau in at, um, oh, at Masada. And the Romans came up the ramp. And sadly, when the Jews knew they were inevitably gonna uh, be breached, the walls breached, they ended up committing suicide. And uh, it was a process that they went through, though, so they wouldn't be captured. It's a very sad story, and yet it's, it's a remarkable place to see, again, the Bible come to life. And so um, another place that we went that's fairly close by is Qumran, the caves of Qumran near the Dead Sea, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, where this community of people who were scribes, they would... Um, take down the scriptures, they would preserve the scriptures, and then they would hide them from the Romans and others in these caves. And then years later, they had been, had been discovered, they'd been evaluated and proven to co collaborate very closely with the records that we have, just as an encouragement and a reminder, again, that the Bible is true, that it's real. And then one last part of this I wanted to show you was, again, to go back to the north of Israel, um, and that's the, the border, this was a fun picture for me because I am a quarter Lebanese. My dad's half. My grandmother's full Lebanese. And so we're looking out at Lebanon um, and one of the cities of Lebanon off in the distance. And so one of the things that God has done over the centuries is to preserve his people. This is, this is um, the flag. It's a national park. But you can see here from the 1967 war, this is a trench and a bunker from that time. And there's countless stories of God preserving his people. And so it's just, just the first lesson that just really struck me was that, that God is real, his Bible is true, and you don't have to be there to believe it. It's real no matter what we think or anybody else says, but it's always encouraging to have something tangible, like First John says, to touch, to see, to feel, to just remind us that this is true. And then to have someone like me say, yes, it is. I saw it. I felt it. And I believe it. And so it's a confirming thing so that you will have fellowship with him. All right. So number two, and I didn't know how to put this, but number two is the prominence of God with us. The idea that God has come down in the person of his son, that God wants to dwell with his people. And that the temple mount just reminded me of that. Look at the size of it in comparison with the rest of the ancient city of Jerusalem. 
It's just remarkable how prominent it is. It just stands out. Um, this place that was designed by, well, Solomon, but God ordained for Solomon to do it. And um, they built this temple that was torn down by the Babylonians and then rebuilt later um, by, oh, at the time of Haggai. And then Herod um, took 46 years to rebuild this place. Uh, The Jews now have built nearly all of the implements, the articles that are going to go back in what they believe will be the rebuilt temple. And I think there's good biblical evidence there's going to be a rebuilt temple. This is the menorah they plan to put in there that's coated with gold and it's behind bulletproof glass, just as something you can look at as you walk down the city uh, streets of Jerusalem. And then I just want to, I want to go back to this though, that um, this Western wall And I've got an arrow now to show you where the entrance is to that area where the men go to pray, to get close to the Holy of Holies. Again, because that represents God with his people. And the desire is to be close to that. The the, the thought is the closer we are to the Holy of Holies without getting right underneath it, because that would probably kill us. And so they they work very carefully to get close, but not too close um, to the place where God's holy presence was. And so here's where the Western Wall is. This is a view underneath the Western Wall of the men that are praying there. Um, The man with his shirt sleeve rolled up is working on getting his phylactery ready and put on. You had a huge variety of people there. But there were libraries of books that you could get, prayer books. The prayer books tell you what to pray, even how to move, what kind of movement to do while you're praying. And people would be doing different kinds of movement as close as they could. To the Holy of Holies. You've got men in their prayer shawls, their phylacteries, some in their orthodox hats, some in just the yarmulkes. We wore a little, they give you a, a white head covering that I kept to, um, to wear. We all had to have them, whether one of us was wearing a Mickey Mouse shirt and a little hat and, or, you know, whatever garb you had on, you had to be protected or appropriate. Um, there are times when you go there, it's almost laughable because it's like so cluttered. But when you strip away the clutter and the, the confusion, the reality of what's trying to be accomplished there and getting close to God and hoping that he, they're going to gain favor with him because they're there in that place, is it's both sad and a reminder of the beauty of Jesus coming and God dwelling with us and in us. And so that was something that really struck me. Um, something else I want to just to emphasize is, um, and by the way, uh, this is the place here where Peter preached that first sermon, they believe, on the, well, let's see, the south side of the Temple Mount. And that's where I would show you the picture earlier. That's where we went, and we saw that place where Peter preached the sermon about Jesus um, after he had ascended to heaven, and we listened to his sermon from those steps. And then also the top of the Temple Mount, I think I've got the arrow in the wrong place, but on top of the Temple Mount where the Jesus preached where he cleansed the temple, where the early church was born um, by the Spirit of God. Um, And then this is just showing the proximity um, of the crucifixion to the temple, which is back behind there based on, again, the best evidence that that we're aware of. But I want to remind you of another, I think, very significant aspect of the Temple Mount in terms of God being with us. And that is the special place that place has in salvation history. Um, That's Mount Moriah. 
that's the place where, if you remember the story, God told Abraham to go, take your son to a place that I will show you on a mountain that I've appointed. And that was this spot on the Temple Mount where Abraham came to sacrifice his son and God provided on the Mount of the Lord. He provided a substitute. He provided a ram. And then the Temple Mount is where if you take it, and, and what's, you know, what's beautiful about this is if you think about Matthew 1, he talks about the generations, the genealogy of Jesus being from Abraham to David, there are 14 generations. And so on this Temple Mount is also the place where David offered the sacrifice when because of David's sin, the people are being destroyed. And then the angel comes and says, how are we going to end this? And David ends up offering a sacrifice to end the plague on this spot, on that Temple Mount, what became the Temple Mount. And then from David to the deportation into Babylon was 14 generations. Well, this is the place that Babylon came and destroyed and took the articles of the temple back to Babylon. And then from the deportation of Babylon to Christ is 14 generations. And again, this is where Jesus came, cleansed the temple. It's right nearby where he was crucified, resurrected. And where I'm standing and taking this picture is on the Mount of Olives, where he ascended into heaven. And so it's also the place that we know from Scripture that Jesus is going to return. Here are those eastern gates that we believe Ezekiel and Zechariah are talking about when Jesus is going to return. And then what's the beautiful thing is that we're not confined to this temple as our hope of God's presence because he has said that his temple is in us. First Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that God's spirit dwells in you? And if anyone destroys this temple, God will destroy him because God's temple is holy and you are that temple. The prominence of this place, the reality that something's wrong right now. And it's fascinating too. It's almost like this great big gold signal that says, this isn't where God is dwelling right now. He's dwelling in you, in his people. But then the reality that something is going to go on there and has gone on there. And then, again, we read it at the beginning of the service, but I want to remind you again, 2 Corinthians 4, for God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so we have this treasure of Jesus in us, not there in the temple, but in us. And so there's this prominence of God with us, how important it is, just makes you think about what God's been doing and about that place. And now number three, the power of God's stories. And um, I'm going to do the best I can with this section. This one was rough to, to summarize. But you've got in, um, oh, what's the story that happens first with Joshua? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. That's, that's where I'm standing in this picture. But I'm not looking at Jericho, the city that was destroyed by Joshua. I'm looking at, does anybody have a, an idea? This is the hill of temptation, they say. We don't know for sure, but it's possible that this is where Jesus was tempted by the devil when he was in the wilderness. And so they built this monastery there. But the other, the other reality is that you have, you're, I'm standing there on that city of Jericho that has not been rebuilt, just like the Bible predicted. And it has evidence of really ancient um, stones and bricks and walls. And what was interesting is to, to picture it like you would picture that Temple Mount. You know, the temple on top is destroyed. Um, it's gone. The, the, the stones were, were thrown over. And similarly, there was a platform at um, here 
at, uh, I'm forgetting the name, I'm going to say Joshua, at the Jericho, there's this platform of brick, and on top of it are the walls. And so you can kind of see it in these pictures where the wall that came crumbling down from on top of the platform and made a ramp that they were able to go up into the city and burn it. And you can see evidence of burned things. I don't know what the things are, but you can see evidence of burning, which confirms what the Bible teaches. Then there's a story of Samson. So one of the days we went out um, with, with Brandon and we, we looked out at those hills. So the hills in the distance are the hills on which Samson was um, born and grew up. And, you know, again, he lived in the hill country and he'd come down into this valley. This is probably the valley in which he set the you know, the, the brands on the foxes um, on fire and destroyed uh, the Philistines' fields. And down to the south, looking out beyond Elisha, is Timnah, where he would go and visit the Philistines. And so you're thinking about that story of Samson as he comes down. And what a mess Samson is. And yet God graciously uses him to glorify himself. And then the story of David and Goliath. This is one of my favorite places. And I don't have the nice arrows and things to point here. But when you look down into the valley there, just beyond those buildings, which, again, most of these valleys outside of Jerusalem going up to Galilee were just farmland. It was beautiful. You have hills and valleys, green, all kinds of farmland. It had quite a few banana, um, which I was surprised at, didn't expect to see. So this in my hand is the stone that's about the size of the stone they believe David would have used to kill Goliath because it's an ancient sling stone, something they found that was identified as a sling stone. And so out beyond these hills, just beyond the rock that I'm holding is the hill that likely the Israelites were on. And then the one beyond that that's in the, in kind of in the clouds and the haze, that's the one that the Philistines would have been on. I'm standing now down in the area where David would have likely gotten his, his stones, and I'm pointing back to the hill that we were standing on where I just took that picture. So back there is what I'm pointing at with my finger. And then down in that valley, of course, we all wanted to go, or most of us wanted to go, and collect rocks just as a reminder, and that's what my five stones are. They're smooth, but they're not round. But I can promise you they would hurt. Um, <laughs> This one's cool. This would be more like if you were to throw it, because all these little handholds. But if, if you and your kids, when they come back downstairs, that's why I was thinking they might have fun here. But I have five stones, and I'm keeping them, so don't take any of them. I want all of them back in my office as a reminder of God's power and David's courage to believe God and do what he said, no matter what the obstacles were like. And so it's likely that David came down that hill into this valley, picked up his stones out of this dry brook. And I don't know if it was dry at the time or wet at the time, depending on the time of year. And Goliath would have come out from this area, most likely stood in that valley and cried out, to defy the armies of God. And David put his trust in God, collected his stones, and you know the story, I believe, right? I hope you do. If not, look it up. 1 Samuel 17. So David and Goliath, just a beautiful reminder of God's power and God's presence in this story. Here's a spot we believe that um, Elijah and the prophets of Baal had their go around. And God displayed his power and his glory to the people by answering Elijah in a moment and consuming both the water and the altar and the sacrifice. Whereas for hours and hours with much blood and crying, the prophets of Baal couldn't get their God's attention because he's no God. He's not real. 
And sadly, the people had worshipped him. And then you have, um, from this same hill, you can look out and you can see um, the city of Shunem and the city of Nain, which were both very close together. And can, can you think of stories that happened in Shunem and Nain that are similar? I hadn't thought about this until I stood there and he pointed to the, the spot and said, there are two women who had had sons they didn't expect to have them. And Elisha raised, I believe it's Elisha. I need to look it up. I have it here for somewhere, but I'm having trouble looking at my notes. Um, who raised the widow's son to life. And then Jesus in Luke raised the widow's son to life in the city of Nain. I just thought that was fascinating looking at it. Both places, those stories, again, the power of God displayed in those stories. Um, another thing you can see from the hill is... Um, the city of Nazareth. I mean, it's just up on a hill. These cities on a hill. I mean, when Jesus said, you know, a city set on a hill can't be hid. He had all kinds of examples to choose from because these cities are up on hills. Here's a little closer view of Nazareth. We didn't go into it because it's very congested and there's really not that much to see when you get in there. And so Nazareth, though, from a distance, you're thinking this is where Jesus grew up. This is where Mary the angel came to Mary where Joseph had to wrestle with the reality of what was going on. And so then you have also this, the, the city of Bethlehem and the story of God bringing his son. And in that you can see nearly from the, the southeastern side of Jerusalem. It's really quite close. Um, when you're there, it, that stands out as well. And so we have Jesus' birth. Another story that's, that's fascinating and pretty stark when you think about it is in Caesarea. Here on the Mediterranean Sea, you have the story where likely Herod, in defiance of God, is giving his speech, and they say, ah, it's the voice of a God and not a man, and he kind of goes, I agree, and God says, you're dead, and that happens here in Caesarea, and beyond that is Herod's palace, and that is likely where Paul was imprisoned by Felix, and we can come back to that in a little bit, so the power of God's stories just jumps out when you're there in the land of Israel. Another, another thing is the necessity of godly conviction. And what do I mean by that? Well, let me just show you. This is the north. We're going to go back to Dan. I didn't, we're going to run out of time regardless, but the, I couldn't put up maps and try to show you everything. This is the headwaters of the Jordan River. It looks like a, a, a creek or a beautiful stream in Northern California, and it, it grows even into a river at times. But that's coming from this spring that just bubbles up out of the ground right here at this spot. But just beyond that is where the Northern tribe of Israel set up that altar. So Jeroboam goes, and he's afraid that the people in 1 Kings 12 are going to go back to Jerusalem, and he's going to lose their loyalty because now the kingdom's divided north and south. So he sets up this altar. And shockingly, I mean, it is shocking that he sets up a golden calf. Had they never read Exodus? Really? They're going to worship the true God in the wrong way? And so I'm sitting there going, for the sake of what? Convenience. The sake of fear of... uh, losing something, losing time, losing money. They're supposed to go to Jerusalem three times a year. And that thing would take four days from there. That's a lot of time. Four days down, four days back. That's eight days of productivity three times a year. We need our people here. They need to be working. I can't afford that. And I want a convenient religion. It's convicting. And it's something where we have to believe God's truth and and we need to do what's right no matter the cost. Also up in that same area, Caesarea Philippi. You remember Caesarea Philippi? That's where Jesus took his disciples partway through his ministry. And he's saying, all right, who, 
who do the people say that I am? The son of man, who do they say that I am? Well, some are saying you're Elijah, some saying you're a prophet. Um, Well, okay, but who do you, my disciples, who do you say that I am? And that's where Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You know what's here at Caesarea Philippi? There was this whole grouping of idol temples that had been built. And in that setting, Jesus looks up and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the son of God, the living one. And the son of God, when you study Old Testament, New Testament, is basically saying he's God. And, and, and the difference between God and everybody else is he's the living one. He's alive. He's not an idol stuck in one of these niches on the wall. And so we need godly conviction to worship God in the way that he prescribes and to believe in him no matter what the cost. And then there's number five, the pattern of making disciples. This one, again, is from the life of Jesus. And here we are outside of Peter's house in the city of Capernaum, where Jesus' ministry began. And we're standing there with the Sea of Galilee behind us, where Peter likely did his fishing. And so the arrow there by the sea is where we're standing in that picture. They've built a, a church of sorts over the top of Peter's house. But it was a fairly large house where it's likely that Jesus and his disciples could have stayed during the ministry. And then right behind it is the synagogue where he did his early teaching and his miracles. And it's just remarkable to stand there and to think about what Jesus has done. And and I put a picture of us in there because what is one of the things that Jesus is doing? He's making disciples today like he did then. And we're some of them by the grace of God. And so it was a privilege to stand there. So the dark stone on the bottom, and I don't know if you realize this, but I didn't. I lived in Northern California for nine years, and all over the hills in Northern California is lava rock. And when you go to build stuff, you find lava rock, basalt. That's basically what is all over in Capernaum and the north side of the Sea of Galilee. And on top of that is built a more modern, it's obviously not super modern, but I don't remember exact time frame, for the synagogue. But that's the actual foundation that Jesus would have walked on and seen in his time. And same with these houses that are all around it. Those are millstones, things that he talked about in his sermons. This is just pictures of housing and then the um, how close that synagogue is to the Sea of Galilee. This is random, but you do get a lot of random stuff when you're over there. That is a manger. That's a feeding trough for animals that may have been the kind that Jesus was laid in. And there again is the Sea of Galilee. And so we have this pattern of Jesus making disciples. He tells us to go and make disciples, but that's what he did. He went and he made disciples. And what's one, you know, it's encouraging in some ways when you think about Jesus being there on the shore and he had 12 that were his close. He had three that were his really close disciples. Yes, then he had 120 When we think of being disciple makers, it's God's work through us, but it doesn't have to be some massive thing. In fact, most of us are never going to be able, and I I would argue that maybe none of us could really disciple tons of people. And so it was encouraging to me to remember what, who are the people God has called me to disciple? And, and you can do it more broadly. Obviously, the reach was much broader, but he had his 12 and he's with them there. And then as you disciple people, remember the pattern is not everybody's going to listen. They're not going to receive it. One of the places we went to was to Chorazin. So we're in Capernaum and we go to Chorazin and we didn't get to Bethsaida. But do you know what's significant about those cities? Jesus did most of his mighty works there. But do you know what he said about them? 
Woe unto you, Chorazin. Woe unto you, Bethsaida. Because if the mighty works had been, that, that were done in you had been done in Sodom and Egypt, they would have repented. But you didn't. That is sobering. And we Americans are in danger of that because of how much we've heard. But these are houses. This is a, a view from one of the windows of a house looking out at the Sea of Galilee from Chorazin. Can you imagine standing there thinking, what am I going to do with Jesus? And most of them rejected him. It's a sobering thing. The Sea of Galilee is just a beautiful place to stand, to think. Evening and morning, I would go out and just stand and try to take a few pictures and just remember the beauty, again, of the sun, the light that has been shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in jars of clay. And I was so thankful that God has chosen to put his light, his presence in our clay pots. I'm thankful for the stories of the disciples. I used to kind of, as a younger man, roll my eyes at Peter. Uh uh-uh, uh, I'm worse. And like the Israelites, you know, oh, those horrible people. I am worse. But apart from the grace of God, I'm constantly complaining. I'm constantly distrusting, mistrusting, and choosing to follow myself more than Jesus. And so it was just good to stand there, to to meditate, to pray. Um, Across the sea is the mountain possibly where Jesus gave the the Great Commission. We'll get to that in a minute. All right, we got to move on. So that's Galilee, that's out on the sea. Oh, and I had fun seeing a fish jump out of the, out of the water. Um, another thing with the disciples, by the way, I can't move on because I've got to get through the pictures here. This is a first century um, boat that they found in the mud, and somehow it had been preserved. As soon as the air would hit it, it would disintegrate. So they had to come up with all these fancy methods to, to preserve it. And so this is a boat that would be about the size and the timing of Jesus and his disciples. So the pattern of making disciples. And number six, I don't know how else to put this, but, but I'm calling it the heartbreaking hope of substitute sacrifice. What do I mean? Well, one of the most significant places for me was the very first place we went and then the very last place that we went in Jerusalem. Um, before we get there, I'm taking you to the Garden of Gethsemane because this for Jesus was where he began before we get to that place. He's praying. You know the story, I believe. It's of him praying to his father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, sweating great drops of blood. Disciples, can't you watch with me even one hour? I'm alone. Father, I'm going to the cross. I don't want to do this. I can't do it. But God appointed it for him. So not my will, but yours be done. And he prays in the garden. We don't know that these trees were there at that time. Most likely not. But some of them have been there a long time and bear witness to Jesus' presence there. And then if you go around to the other side of the city of Jerusalem, the old city, there's Herod's palace. They believe that Herod's palace is the place where Pontius Pilate would often reside. There's some debate about this. Where was Pilate at the time that he did the trial? And so from the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is arrested and he's taken to trial. And it's possible that it was in Herod's palace on that side of Jerusalem, the western side of Jerusalem. These towers, by the way, were not built at the time of Herod. These were later ones, the time of the Crusades. Down below it, though, are foundation stones from the time of Herod. They have a very distinctive look, so it's fairly simple to tell which ones date back to that time. But one of the things we did at the last day was to go into that Herod's palace, the the citadel of David, um, different ages and different stages of history. They're all there mixed in these same places. And so it's possible that Jesus was inside this area that he was taken down into dungeons that they, they know and have excavated below this. 
um, to stand trial, to wait for his trial. From the top of it, you can see the Temple Mount. You can see the Mount of Olives from that place. And so we just walked around and we just looked, we saw... We could, you can walk up to the ramparts of these walls. Again, they're not the ancient walls, but they're the crusader walls. They're actually really cool. If you like castles and stuff, I could picture being in my armor. Um, I was thinking maybe I wouldn't even need armor because there's so much protection there, but you know, I'm sure somebody could lob something up over that or shoot an arrow through the cracks. But you're walking on those stones, and we're walking along, and I said to Hudson, I said, so wh- wh- where, was, where was it that we think Jesus was tried? Where would, it, where would Peter have been? During the, remember, he came in and the, the cock crows and he goes, I think, right over there. And so we look over and right at that very moment, and I'm not superstitious, it just happened to be that way, that that rooster right there crows. And I was like, are you kidding? And there was a little fire pit where you can't see it. And there's a kitty cat. There are lots of cats, by the way. We all have gotten pictures of cats um, from the boys. And so... I know that's humorous and all, but the fact is, here this disciple of Peter who'd seen Jesus' mighty miracles. Now, he, he was still believing, but even he denies him three times when asked directly. And so be careful lest you deny him and lest I deny him. And so it's heartbreaking to see what happened to Peter. It's heartbreaking to see Jesus be in the state that he was in. And then when you swing over to the other side of the wall, I think that this is likely where the crowd stood and yelled, crucify, crucify him. They had heard him preach, many of them in the temple. Um, They had heard of his miracles. Some had seen seen them. And yet they cried out, crucify him. This is the first place we went. And here are stone steps. And above it is an opening where they believe that Pilate led Jesus out and stood here and said, behold your king. And they say, we have no king but Caesar. And he says, should I crucify your king? And they say, crucify him. And he washes his hands of it. And so that was a sobering thing because those rocks, those steps likely date back to the time of Jesus. And so the question in my heart constantly is, where am I going to stand? Am I going to stand with the crowds and say, forget you, Jesus? Or am I going to worship him as king? And then even if I am a follower, am I going to be like Peter and deny him? And so this was a sobering spot where it really it's heartbreaking to think about. And yet, what an amazing thing, because we needed him to substitute for us because we deserve death. We deserved mocking. We deserved not false accusation. Those would be true accusations of us that he went through in his trial. And so we believe he was led down along these walls back into not through this gate, but outside the old gate. So you can see there are, two, there are two walls. There's multiple walls because of multiple time periods. But during Jesus' time periods, there was a rock quarry on the outside of the wall, and that's where right now the traditional um, church stands where they believe there's a remnant of the stone that Jesus, or the, the rocks, the, the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified, and then a little ways away is the tomb where he was laid. And so it just was a, a time to think, to thank the Lord, to rejoice in his substitutionary sacrifice for me because I deserved to be crucified. I deserved to be rejected. And yet because Jesus was, I don't have to be. And the presence of God can be with me, can be in me. I can be with him because of what he's done. And I don't need a temple to do it. 
And so that was remarkable. And then alongside the road, there was a first century tomb with one of those rolling stones. We don't know for sure, but it's likely this is the kind of thing that Jesus was buried in. And so it was a picture that was worth taking so that we could see that and I could show it to you. Now, that's why I called it the heartbreaking hope, because without him we have no hope of substitute sacrifice. All right, the last one is the the compelling mission of the Great Commission. This is very similar to making disciples, so this won't take too long, but you see that mountain there, Mount Arbel. There's a debate about where the Great Commission was given and even where the Sermon on the Mount was given, but it's possible that it was this hill. And Jesus, if you remember, after he was raised from the dead, told his disciples to go meet me in Galilee and go meet me on the mountain that I have appointed. And so some believe that this is the mountain. And so we went up on that mountain. And, and it... Uh, Before I left on the trip, I would have thought, there's no way. That's just ridiculously high. He's not going to go up there. I'm sorry. After being there, there isn't anything too high. If he said, I'm going to go meet you at the top of Mount San Jacinto, I'd have believed him. I'd believed you. Because they're hiking all the time. The hills are crazy. I'm like, you know, I'm glad my house doesn't have stairs. I like one-story house. That's over in, in Israel. You have to walk a lot and up hills. And so actually my view of hiking is different. I'm actually, mo- nobody take me up on this yet, but I am motivated to do some hiking and get in better shape just because I know it's such a part of Jesus and his disciples' life. And this is some of the view you're looking back at Capernaum at Jesus or Peter's house where Jesus stayed from this view. Here's another part of the Great Commission. So up there on that mountain, they believe that Jesus gave the Great Commission, going into all the world, preach the gospel. Which, by the way, for those of you who love views, what a better place to do it. Stand up there, look out. You've been there, some of you, all of us, even if we don't like hiking, right, have gotten to see some view. You pulled off the side of the road somewhere. You've hiked up somewhere. There's something inspiring about a view And there are views everywhere, and it's likely that up here is where Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And one of the primary um, examples of fulfilling the Great Commission is someone who wrote 13 books in our New Testament, the Apostle Paul. And we stood on the side of a road on our trip from Galilee back toward Jerusalem, and I I wasn't thinking about any of this, but the teacher says, look out there in the distance, kind of where that mountain is, and he says, that's the road to Damascus. I'm like, wait, way up here? Really? And yes, the road to Damascus. 150 miles, Paul asked to go and persecute Christians. You know what? Maybe over a week, maybe two weeks of travel, and Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. And then Paul ends up in prison in Caesarea, where he's preaching the gospel to Felix and to Agrippa. And this is the area there in Caesarea. This is totally different than the, um, you know, Damascus. I'm back in on the, the Mediterranean. And this, these are the aqueducts, the Roman aqueducts. And that helps for me. I was thinking, okay, so here's Paul. He's in prison. He's called by God, saved. He's fulfilling the Great Commission in prison, and he's able to preach the gospel. And then we went to this one city, Bethshan, and it's just like this step back in time, like in that Roman era, like Paul would have gone from place to place. And it just gives you this sense of that you're there. I'm, Alicia and I were running around through this place. It, 
was hot, but we wanted to see it because it was just so fascinating. This is inside an amphitheater. This is just long, along a walkway at this point, but it's you know these beautiful mosaics on the ground and these pillars along the way. And you can imagine Paul, like in Acts 17, going into these cities and preaching Christ. And, and these are well-to-do people in this beautiful place. Some of them mocked him. Some of them wanted to hear more. And God started to save people, and the church was built throughout that known world. And this is just a neat example, you know, and those of you maybe who've been in a, in a Colosseum or someplace, you go down the tunnel and you come out into this amphitheater where plays and things would have been done. And maybe this is the kind of place where Paul would have, would have spoken. Again, we weren't in Greece and we weren't in um, Asia Minor, but, but the fact is Paul was a wonderful example of the Great Commission. And based on what Jesus has done, it's compelling. And so those are my seven lessons from the land of Israel. Number one, the reality of the God of the Bible, the prominence of God with us, the power of God's stories, the necessity of godly conviction, the pattern of making disciples, the heartbreaking hope of substitute sacrifice, the compelling mission of the Great Commission that we see in the Apostle Paul. So how should we respond? It's what I said at the beginning. Come, let us adore him. Why? He's Christ. He's God's anointed one. He's God's appointed one who came to the earth as God with us. He's the Lord. He deserves your worship. He's your creator He's your king, and if you bow to him in worship, he's your savior. So say yes to him. Turn from your sins, turn from your own way, and put your trust in him. I think it's interesting, as my final point and slide, you know, you go to Israel and you're seeing places, you're seeing people, you're thinking of stories, you're trying to touch things so that you can enhance your fellowship with the one, and i think it's encouraging. We have pictures, right, of people and of places in our lobby that remind us that we are designed by God to behold him so that we know how, how much he is uniquely great, his glory. We're to treasure him, value him above everything else, and then we're to go and proclaim his greatness to others. And so I just think it's a good reminder as you say, well, I didn't get to go to Israel. Nope. But you can get pictures like this online. I have a a whole set of them. I have more I can show you. We have pictures there. Take those tangible reminders and have fellowship with Jesus on the basis of who he is and what he's done. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for your grace and your goodness to us. We trust you to work in our hearts through these things. In Jesus' name, amen.